It's, it's Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that have returned honor to, to journalism. Julian is a truth teller, and that's what has upset the, those who continue what Goebbels called the big lie. Okay, once again, that was, as if you don't know, Anton Karras from The Third Man, and uh, who doesn't know that was John Pilger at the very top. I think we're going to have John Pilger on again, I think, uh, maybe next week. Uh, That will be our next interview, hopefully. Uh, Great interview by um, Afshin uh, Ratanzi of uh, Going Underground uh, Wednesday night. Wasn't that great? Um, now what can I tell you folks? I can tell you this. This is, um, one of those kind of improvised shows. We're not in the studio because of the shutdown in New York, so I've had to improvise. I've had to do makeshift things. I've used Zoom. I've used voice recorder. Uh, I've done it all, folks. And it's, you know, I'm not a tech guy. I'll be honest with you. I'm not a tech guy. I look forward to getting back into the studio where it's so much easier. Uh, This is difficult for me. But, you know, my friend Kelly Lane, who's a big Assange supporter, she does the... um, the recordings out of North Carolina. My friend, uh, my friend, one of my friends from Anonymous Scandinavia does all of the sound files, all of the music, and all of those things like the um, Anton Karras, John Pilger cold opening. Those are all done uh, in Scandinavia by one of my friends at uh, Anonymous Scandinavia. So, you know, this thing gets moved around and uh, it's like an assembly line of um, from the 19th century. The McCormick Reaper, basically, is what we got here. Um, I think it's called the McCormick Guard. Stanley Steamer, you know, the, the old uh, steamship uh, from the uh, 19th century. Is that Stanley Steamer? I don't know. Ful- Fulton Steamer, that's it. Uh, this is Assange's Countdown to Freedom. Uh, this is live on the fly, Randy Credico live on the fly. This is our, can you believe it, our 13th show this season. This is our season number four. So bear with me. There's going to be, you know, some potholes throughout this particular uh, double recording today where I have Nathan Fuller and then Aaron Mate uh, from uh, The Nation and from Gray Zone News. So kind of bear with me today. i got great music along the way uh, as um, the one coming up. The one coming up, all right? This is uh, uh, Neil Young and Ohio, and then we'll be back with Nathan Fuller from Courage Foundation. Hang in there, folks, please. It won't be long before I get into a studio.
is Randy Credico. This is Randy Credico live on the fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. And uh, as I said, uh, we are being joined now by the executive director of the Courage Foundation, Nathan Fuller, who I last saw in at the Belmore's trial or preliminary trial of Julian Assange. Uh, welcome back to the show. It's been a long time since I've actually spoken to you on this program, Nathan. I know it. Thanks for having me, Randy. It's uh, felt like an even longer month than it has been. <laughs> that was quite a trial. Now, I've had a lot of people on who were there. You're one of the witnesses as well uh, that was in that small group of 24 that got to see it. You saw it every single day and you did real time um, analysis or uh, you, you, you uh, stenography, basically. Did you just <laughs> did you type everything that was said there or were you uh, did, did you type everything? Tweeted as, uh, typed and tweeted as much as I could and uh, got a whole lot of it. Yeah, that was amazing. And, uh, you got a lot, of, you got, I tell you, you, got, you really can concentrate, man. I saw you, I was sitting right next to you and like, you're blah, 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 blah. <laughs> amazing. Can't stop typing. Yeah, well, and, and plus you watched it too and it was quite a uh, charade, wasn't it? Really pretty incredible to uh, yeah, hear arguments about a, a ruling and then see that that ruling was pre-written at the end of it and pretty disappointing. Yeah, I mean, you, you were there one extra day. I left on the Wednesday, you were there on the Thursday. So um, it, it was just uh, appalling what I saw and everyone agrees with that. And people who, who read what you wrote about it and others who wrote about it uh, and, and got the news reports elsewhere are uh, pretty much appalled by uh, this uh, complete Kafka-esque exercise. And what about the judge? What did you make of that judge? Yeah, so again, she seems like she really is afraid of stepping outside of any bounds at all. She does not want to take any risks and is even more conservative on some of these issues than the U.S. government. A key example is letting Assange out of the, the glass box at the back where he can barely hear, let alone follow the proceedings, and he can't participate with his own legal defense. Uh, and even the U.S. government said that they could figure out a way to let him out of the dock and to sit next to his lawyers and participate in his own legal defense. And the judge said no. First, she said she didn't have the authority to do so, then agreed she does have the authority, but she won't do it anyway. She did have the authority to do that. We know they have wide range of authority. I mean, what kind of danger could he possibly pose to that courtroom or to her? The U.S. was even willing to, to say, you know, just have a security guard next to him if you're really worried he's going to start running. And how far could he go when there are security guards everywhere? Uh, yeah, it's just a reason not to allow him to participate in the defense, which is really a, a due process right. And it's really essential to being able to to mount a successful defense. Did you, you saw the uh, three um, U.S. attorneys that were sitting behind the prosecution. Uh, they seem to be pulling a lot of strings. Did they not to you? Right. We think we have uh, some DOJ officials, potentially an FBI uh, official. Um, but yeah, they're in there constantly uh, giving, uh, you know, they're obviously going to be giving advice to the, the U.S. prosecution, uh, which is acting for the CPS in this case. You know, I got to tell you something. Uh, these guys went to law school and this is what they're doing with that. Uh, all that time that they spent studying at law school, they're, they're participating in one of the biggest sham, uh, Kafka-esque 
uh, phony trials in, in the history of the world. It really is. I mean, I've never seen anything quite like it. I mean, it's like the die has been cast and there's absolutely no shot that he could possibly win this. Why even go through the motions? You know what I mean? That's the way I, I uh, <laughs> can feel that way, but it's absolutely worth, worth fighting there. I thought his defense actually made some some great arguments and laid things out really clearly, uh, giving the judge every opportunity to make as a clear, good, just good decision. Yes, I, I agree with that, of course, with to the very end. One of the problems, Nathan, is now that you have this international, we have two problems. Uh, the fact that he is in a prison uh, there is, that, uh, is an old, dank, uh, kind of sordid, uh, you know, squalid uh, prison. We got people going in and out in a city that's really been uh, beset by this uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, virus uh, plague. And, uh, you know, it's, it's only a matter of time before inmates start getting uh, infected with this, with all of the people going in and out that have been going in and out. Uh, and we know that the prisons are uh, hotbeds for the um, proliferation of this virus. At least I know it has uh, taken a, an ugly uh, route here at the Rikers facility and other state prisons. And it's, yeah, it's in incredibly dangerous, really horrible situation for prisoners who are just incredibly scared of getting this virus where they have little or no access to healthcare and where they have little or no ability to protect themselves. There's no protective gear. There's no, uh, there's no uh, escaping uh, this virus when they're stuck in there. So it's a really a terrible situation. Uh, and that was the, uh, the subject of his bail hearing last week. Yeah, that, I was just gonna ask you about the bail hearing. Um, uh, Apprise the audience uh, out there, for those who um, are not aware of what took place at that bail hearing last week. And just give us a little bit of the background and then the decision. Sure. So the, I mean, the context of this is that we already know that COVID-19 is in UK prisons. Uh, uh, Marty Silk reported yesterday that we have 88 prisoners and 15 staff who've tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, and we know uh, from just news reports that the virus is often spread with a asymptomatic, meaning you know people with no symptoms, so they're likely not to have tested. So the numbers are surely higher than that. Uh, and Julian Assange uh, is a, uh, a extremely low-risk, nonviolent um, uh, defendant, and he is at is more vulnerable than the average prisoner, who's already more vulnerable than the average citizen. Uh, because he's had a chronic lung dis uh, disease for more than a decade, he's uh, had health has his health has deteriorated over the last several years. He's been psychologically tortured. He's uh, at great risk for this virus, and so his defense lawyers, on those grounds, uh, brought forward a bail application uh, to Judge Vanessa Breitzer uh, last week, arguing that he's uh, at great risk and he's very willing to. Uh, be in home confinement. He'll wear an ankle bracelet, uh, do whatever reporting or monitoring that they want, as long as he's able to be somewhere safe where he can protect himself from this virus. He could properly socially distance. Um, and it, and judge listened to those arguments and denied it, said that uh, just because uh, he sought asylum back in 2012, they consider him a flight risk and therefore uh, did not let him out of prison. Uh, the UK is releasing other prisoners and uh, 
lots of other low-risk nonviolent offenders uh, who from prisons, uh, especially if they have little time left on their sentence, uh, because they understand that this is a great risk, that it can spread very quickly and prisoners are at great risk. And uh, the way that they've been written, these policies that allow prisoners out, uh, is is incredibly <laughs> It's uh, is incredible workarounds to avoid releasing Julian Assange. Um, they mm -hmm. said they'll release low-risk people, that they'll release, release people with custodial sentences, meaning they're more willing to than anyone on remand, which is what Julian Assange is. Uh, Assange is on remand, meaning he's, he's waiting uh, for uh, a trial to determine a sentence. Um, but he's just waited. He's only being held for the extradition request. Um, but so their policies say that they will release someone who's been convicted and has a little time left on their sentence instead of releasing someone who has not even been convicted yet. Uh, so it's just an incredible scenario that puts that that really makes no no sense except that we we understand they want to let out as many vulnerable prisoners not named Julian Assange as they can. Right, right. So uh, I I think her decision was made long before the argument arguments were made. And uh, she just went through the motions, and uh, it, it really, like I said, it is appalling, and it's a real blow to justice. That I mean, because if he were, were let out right now, uh, and and he could have guards around the house, you know, and he have the ankle bracelet, and uh, he'd be able to communicate with his lawyers. It is so difficult for his lawyers to communicate. This is a major case. You know, I mean, this is a major international case. He should be allowed to have as much time as he he's fighting for his life. Because if he gets sentenced and, and, and sent over here, if he gets convicted, whatever the, you, you call it, and they agree with the U.S. and they send him over here, it's definitely a death sentence. You know, if he ends up in a place like uh, that Supermax in, in Colorado or any place, I mean, you're just not safe here. And uh, the, um, the, the sanitation in, in these prisons all over the country, including the federal prison system, is, uh, is really shabby. So it's, um, Yeah, it's a, a case not of only of incredible importance, but of incredible size and scope. It has hundreds of thousands of documents requiring computer use, requiring lots of reading and interacting with his lawyers. Uh, so that would... I mean, that's the real danger here. That's why they don't want to let him out. He would be able to properly uh, work with his lawyers on his own legal defense. He's a brilliant individual. I mean, he is, uh, you know, what they, I guess he could be a jailhouse lawyer at this point because <laughs> he, I mean, because he's, I've seen briefs that he's written before and, 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 and just legal analysis of, of a certain uh, situation that, that he's been in. He sent to me, I, you know, so he really is, a well-versed, uh, a um, definitely a, a guy of many talents. Um, we're talking with uh, Nathan Fuller of the Courage Foundation. Uh, and uh, the other problem I, I was going to ask you, Nathan, is, is that there's no vigils, there's no demonstrations, there's not much of it, not, there's not just a virtual street movement that's happening. I mean, just myself, I'm not in a studio, so we've, we've had to uh, find ways, improvise, doing and continuing this show. And so I can imagine how difficult it is for those who uh, stage these events uh, trying to uh, influence public opinion. Uh, what is your take on that and, and how much will it affect the future of this uh, process? 
Right. It's it's not that there's ever a good time, but it's come at a really difficult time for for campaigners. I mean, we've had uh, you've had on the NYC Free Assange vigilers who are uh, vigil every week for to, at Grand Central Station in New York to raise awareness about Assange. Uh, they can't do that anymore. And we had a series of great public events in D.C. and Los Angeles and New York uh, leading up to that February hearing. Uh, and those with big public gatherings to raise awareness and raise funds and sell books and talk about the case. Uh, and we can't do that anymore. So that's definitely a, a, a hindrance, but we're like everyone else working around it and uh, working uh, online instead. And so uh, yesterday, April 5th, was the 10th anniversary of the collateral murder video release. Uh, and we there was a, a webinar with Christian Raftinson, editor WikiLeaks, and uh, Nozomi Haisi and yeah. Anne Wright. I saw uh, that, it was great, it really was. Yeah. Just a really great recap of, of the incredible impact of that video uh, around the world for a, a full decade. Uh, and now we're going to have on April 11th, we'll have a, another webinar uh, to mark one year since Julian Assange has been arrested. And that will feature uh, Professor Marjorie Cohn, Chris Hedges and Dan Ellsberg. And Aaron Mate is going to moderate that. So look out for uh, at Courage Found on Twitter and on the website defend.wikileaks.org. We're going to have more information about the, the webinar and where to sign up and everything. Um, but definitely stay tuned for that. We have uh, and more coming. Okay, great. Um, any other events happening? By the way, the event that took place here in the city at, uh, at the law school, CUNY Law School was tremendous. It was, you know, it, it, there was such an overflow went out into the streets. That was a big success. So uh, it, it's too bad that we can't build on that physically and have something uh, right afterwards because the size, it was really growing. The movement was really growing here. The vigil at uh, 42nd Street uh, by the uh, Free Assange Free. Uh, Chelsea Manning uh, organizers inside Grand Central was uh, really becoming a, a, a popular a site uh, for uh, organizers and for those who wanted to show their support for Julian Assange. Uh, any other uh, uh, events yes. to uh, promote? Or? Yeah, one more. On April 19th, we had planned to have a, a public in-person gathering in the Bay Area out in Oakland. Uh, and that was with me and Nozomi Haisi and uh, Joe Lombardo and some members of the National Lawyers Guild. Uh, and so while that can't take place in person, that will also now be online. So that's April 19th and we'll have more information. Just check out at Courage Found on Twitter and defend.wikileaks.org. Okay, that's great. Nathan Fuller, uh, people uh, can reach you and can reach uh, Courage Foundation at, uh, at on Twitter. I know it's Courage Found, F O U N, yep. Courage Found. Uh, and your website, once again, defend.wikileaks.org. Okay. All right, Nathan, uh, continue uh, the great work that you've been doing and Courage Foundation uh, has been doing, and we'll see you soon. Nathan Fuller. Thanks, Randy. Speak soon. In this dirty old part of the city When the sun refused to shine People tell me there ain't no use in trying 
to get out of this place okay uh you know we're we're making a little shift here um he was not scheduled on the show but since he was mentioned uh in the beginning by uh, courage foundation uh, executive director nathan fuller uh, about this event coming up i said why not man uh let's bring him in right now so uh this is live on the fly and we've got uh, Aaron Mate uh, on the show right now. He's the only one this year that will now be on twice in one year, but he really uh, merits it because uh, Aaron Mate is an incredible uh, investigative journalist. You've seen the stuff in the nation. Uh, he's uh, with Gray Zone News with uh, some wonderful people, including Max Blumenthal, Kent uh, 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 Norton, Ben Norton, and of course um, Anya Parampel, who just got married to. Max Blumenthal. So, um, Aaron, I got to tell you something. Your stuff, I look at your stuff, you, steady stream of incredible uh, tweets by you that get retweeted <laughs> a million times. I must mention that if you want to know about Russiagate, just follow Aaron Mate and then read all of the articles that he's written. He's an award winning journalist. Uh, and uh, just uh, such a, a, a super intelligent uh, guy, and we're really happy to have you back on. What a long fucking introduction that was. Well, thanks, Randy. You know, I have a better suggestion, which is that even better than knowing a lot about Russiagate and following me, you're much better off knowing nothing about Russiagate, and so not following me, because Russiagate, <laughs> as, we, as we all know now, was such a giant fraud scam and waste of time. So I actually right. and I actually envy but I actually envy anybody who doesn't know anything about it. Uh let me let me just say this. All right. The, to me, what you have uh uncorked, uh, unleashed, uh, unveiled uh, about the most important to me, since this is Julian Assange's countdown to freedom, was there was no connection between Russia and Julian Assange. Can you uh, go into that for a couple of minutes? Well, I mean, look, Assange says that there was no, that, uh, that no state actor was involved in providing the stolen emails to him. He hasn't gone into much more than that. Uh, he offered, he made overtures to the U.S. government to discuss with them um, evidence that could rule out the role of state actors, including Russia, but those offers were rebuffed, um, which 
is a curious uh, decision by the U.S. government, as is the as is the decision by Robert Mueller uh, to not try to interview Julian Assange, even though Mueller is doing an investigation that is centered on the emails, the, the Democratic Party emails that Assange released. And you know, I can't make a conclusive, conclu- yeah, a, a definitive statement that there's no tie between Russia and Assange because I, you know. I still don't know how those emails were obtained and who knows, right? But what I do know is that the case that Mueller tried to make does not at all establish any kind of tie between Assange and Russia. And if anything, it raises questions about it because basically Mueller has this timeline where, you know, he doesn't explain the fact that Assange announced in early June that he had Democratic Party emails. And then only after that, according to Mueller's own timeline, does Assange actually receive the emails from these cutouts, uh, DC leaks and Guccifer 2.0, who Mueller claims are Russian intelligence. So according to, if we're supposed to believe Mueller in his version, then we have to believe that Assange announced that he had the emails before he ever even made contact with the people, with the Russians who Mueller says gave him to Assange. So it doesn't make sense. It's not plausible that Assange would announce that he had something before he even made contact with the people who Mueller wants us to believe gave him the emails. So you go ahead. Sorry. And that's just one aspect of the very shaky case for uh, for this alleged Russian uh, hack and then giving it to WikiLeaks, as is also the fact that uh, Mueller even acknowledges in his report that he has no idea how Assange actually acquired the emails. He says that he doesn't, Mueller doesn't rule out that there were intermediaries who maybe physically gave it to Assange in the summer of 2016, which says that Mueller actually has no idea because if he knew for sure, he would say so, but he doesn't. He only suggests that it came from these alleged Russian cutouts, Guccifer 2.0 and DC League. So look, that's just one aspect of how basically using disingenuous language and murky language, ambiguous language, and then relying on a credulous media in the U.S. to parrot whatever you want the people to believe. That's how Mueller and his team created this image of Assange and Russia being in cahoots. But who, who would you say are the, the worst transgressors of, of promoting that in the U.S. media on CNN or MSNBC or even Fox? Who are the worst transgressors who would uh, just overlook uh, any kind of, uh, you know, an opinion that was different than what was being offered in media. Who were the 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 most vile transgressors of this uh, this bogus uh, narrative? Would you say? You know, it, it's it's the most powerful institutions. It's CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times. Individually, I'm saying individually. Oh, individually. Well, Rachel Maddow is the obvious choice. I mean, we all know that now. I mean, she she was just for you know however long it was three years a straight up propagandist. I'll give you an example, you know, that's that's relevant to Assange. Uh, there was on a day when there was some activity in a, in an in an Assange grand jury. Maddow then put that then then reported that quote unquote as being potentially a sign that Assange was going to be indicted for being involved in uh, in in helping Russia hack emails. That's what she suggested. Even though the even though the available even though it was already known that the grand jury activity of that day that Maddow was reported on, including in articles that she was 
showing on screen, uh, showing the headlines of, but not showing their contents of. It was acknowledged that that grand jury activity was actually about trying to get Chelsea Manning to testify against Assange and testify for this grand jury. So Maddow took that, took a development in the Assange grand jury that had to do with this, uh, with the uh, Iraq war logs and the Afghan and, and the State Department cables and Chelsea Manning, and took that and falsely spun it as being a potential sign of a development that Assange was going to be indicted and extradited for something to do with Russian meddling. I mean, so she was just disgraceful as a journalist and, uh, and uh, also just as a Cold War ideologue in, in, in sort of fanning the flames of this like Russophobia and, and, this, and Cold War chauvinism towards Russia. But there, you know, I mean, look, you, you can go to everybody, uh, Chris Hayes, the, the hour before her. I mean, I've talked to you about this, like, you know, when you posted on Facebook, Randy, when you went to the London embassy, which you didn't even get into, but you went to it, <laughs> This was in September 2016? Right, yes. Uh, you September posted a, 28, and you, yeah. And you posted a picture of yourself outside of it. And then, and then you know, whenever it was, when we got to the point in the Russiagate soap opera where the narrative managers decided that you, Randy Critico, were going to be a key intermediary in this fictional uh, Russia Assange plot, then you had people like Chris Hayes putting that picture you took of yourself outside the embassy and calling it the smoking selfie. You know? I mean, wait a second. Now, Chris, Hayes, <laughs> Chris Hayes writes, did write for the nation. He did. There was a point in time where Chris Hayes, and I remember Jeremy Scahill was ecstatic that Chris Hayes got the job. Yeah, uh, I was on, too. On MSNBC. I was too. In, in the prime, I mean, a lot of people were. What yeah. happened to Chris Hayes? Well, you know, look, I, uh, look, Chris, I remember. When, when Chris Hayes did his first show in prime time on MSNBC for his, the, the show he has now, All In, the first show was about striking fast food workers. And, you know, I also remember that uh, he did this great town hall with Bernie Sanders with Trump voters in West Virginia after Trump won, you know. Uh, but then the Russia thing got just too profitable for uh, too many powerful people. And MSNBC being in that, being in the business of parroting democratic elite talking points and also uh, uh, marching in lockstep with the national security state, there was just too much of a convergence of interests. And Chris Hayes, whether or not he had, an, he had at that point the capacity to have an independent thought that, and the awareness to recognize that all of this was bullshit, you know, whatever it was, if he had that thought, then he suppressed it and he went along with it. But he's a smart guy. Come on, the guy's a very intelligent guy. It's not about and being smart. If you I want that, I'm saying, but he's a smart guy. How did he fall for this? Well, you know, he has a great book called Twilight of the Elites, where he talks about this phenomenon of cognitive capture, where the longer you're uh, enmeshed in uh, elite circles, you will develop their way of looking at the world, and you'll you'll gain the intuitive understanding that if you deviate from that, then your privilege and stature is threatened. And Chris Hayes very much went into this world where you're making a lot of money as a cable news host. And if you deviate from that, then you lose that and you're kicked out. I mean, they do that to anybody who challenges the party line. So, you know, look, look, here's where I don't judge him. It's because he has kids. He has a family that feeds and he comes right. from a class background. So, so you never know what goes on with someone and, 
You know, is, is it the end of the world that he was a Russiagate propagandist for three years? I mean, it was embarrassing and it was terrible journalism, but, you know, I can understand how possibly in his head it was rationalized. I know, but all right. So to me, the worst transgressor of this two people, and that is uh, Jim Acosta and mm. Kendall Lanian. Yeah, they're pretty bad. They're pretty bad. Um, seriously, where do these guys come from? Who's paying them? And why are they uh, professing this like horrible fucking line? Both of them are anti-Julian Assange. Well, that's the case of a phenomenon where, you know, people – you know, elite journalists who brand themselves as being adversarial and, you know, they, have, they really get off on their, if they get into a little squabble with Trump and, you know, they, and they market this as being hold, as if they're holding the powerful to account. And so when someone like Julian Assange comes along, who really actually holds the powerful to account, who challenges anybody, not just Trump, but everybody, the entire bipartisan political establishment and all of their priorities, um, then Assange is a real threat to them. He's a threat to them in terms of their ego because here's someone with actual integrity and actual principles um, and an actual record of doing what you know publishing and media and journalism is supposed to be about. So they hate him for that. It's like this, you know, they 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 resent him for being an actual rare species of a brave adversarial media publisher you know that those just don't exist and to succeed you're 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 supposed to be the exact opposite so i think they resent him and you know to be in the position that they are in they they have to serve power and you know there's a a very powerful faction of the elite which despises trump not because they really care about all the suffering he's inflicting on the world but because they don't see him as a suitable steward of, of the empire that they're a part of and that they, and that they serve so they can have a little fight with Trump, but when it comes to really challenging power like Julian Assange, no. In fact, they have to attack him and paint him as a Russian agent. In fact, CNN did this crazy hit job. It wasn't Acosta, but it was somebody else on Assange in the summer of 2019, where they had this long investigation about supposedly showing how Assange worked with Russian hackers, but it was just garbage. And, um, uh, uh, the uh, the embassy worker from Ecuador, the the Ecuadorian official, uh, who um, who worked in the who worked in the Ecuadorian embassy for a while, um, his name I'm blanking on his name. Fidel 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 uh, Fidel Navarez. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, he just just you know he he wrote about that for the gray zone about like he he cataloged dozens of lies in one single CNN article. It's like it's amazing. He did this long list for the gray zone going through all the lies in this article about Assange and how they just, it's, you know, and of course, now we know more that some of the, some of the, some of the uh, surveillance footage that they obtained to make that hit piece on Assange comes from that Spanish company that was spying on Assange on behalf of the CIA. So well, I just got some footage of me mm. that they got me. I just got the footage uh, mm. the other day. I'm not going to make it public yet. But uh, somebody sent me footage of me uh, in in the embassy, and and the and the uh, CIA took uh, like particular interest in me going into the embassy a year after the election, 2017. And I went in there. I brought in a bottle of bourbon, which he didn't even drink. I ended up drinking it. This is in November 2017, and it shows me asleep in the conference room. Mm. So I just got a hold of that footage. 
these people actually thought that I had something to do with, you know what I mean? It's like when I was in there, we talked about dogs. We talked about, uh, we talked about farming. Uh, we talked about uh, music. We didn't talk about anything. I made sure that I wasn't interested in talking about Vault 7, but they took particular interest. There's notes on me that mm. I've gotten, uh, and I'm going to send these to you, all right? Because I want you to show these at, at the Gray Zone, what sure, they yeah. did to me. Yeah. Uh, and I've got some incredible uh, pictures and footage of me being surveilled by this UC Global. What was that all about? Well, it shows that while people like CNN and MSNBC were pushing this, you know, just ridiculous narrative that Assange and the Trump administration were secretly conspiring via intermediaries like you uh, and Roger Stone pushing that whole fiction, that literally during the same period when all this, all this propaganda was being spewed and this narrative was being constructed in the U.S. media, what was actually going on behind the scenes is that, is that the Trump administration was using the CIA to spy on Assange via this company, um, uh, UC from, Global, UC Global from from Spain. And you know why they did that is because you know I suspect that one of the main drivers was Mike Pompeo, who was you know first headed the CIA for Trump, and then he became his now his Secretary of State. And Mike Pompeo is a uh, anti WikiLeaks fanatic. He's uh, basically uh, labeled it a hostile, uh, non-government uh, non 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 uh, intelligence organization. And he's had WikiLeaks in his its site from the start. I mean, you would you say that he's got WikiLeaks derangement syndrome? I would definitely say uh, Pompeo has WikiLeaks derangement syndrome <laughs> and many more. I mean, look, anybody out there in the world who challenges remotely U.S. hegemony, Pompeo wants to destroy. I mean, that's why he's so... You, you watch his press conference and, you know, my friend Dan Cohen, uh, who also writes sometimes for the Gray Zone, did a, did a uh, like an image basically comparing uh, Mike Pompeo to Jabba the Hutt. And it's that same kind of, they do have a similar kind of look where they sort of, they, they exist on, um, on ravaging other people and, and, and destroying, you know, the, like the weak and being this you know, grandiose monster uh, drunk on power. And Pompeo, you see him right now where he's salivating over the fact that you know, his sanctions that he's implementing are destroying uh, lives and economies and health systems in Iran and Venezuela. So Mike yeah, Pompeo- Let's talk about that for a minute, uh, what's happening in Iran and Venezuela. Uh, because the gray zone has been on top of this. You've been in Venezuela, you've been Norton and, and Anya, and, and, and Max were down in Venezuela. Uh, how appalling is it to you, uh, this recent press conference by Trump and uh, by uh, Defense Secretary Esper about diverting ships down to the Gulf of, uh, of Venezuela? Uh, what's, what's that all about? Well, what, what they're doing is, uh, is insane. And for people who remember the invasion of Panama, there are a lot of uh, parallels, including some of the same characters, uh, including Attorney General William Barr, where, so they've just recently indicted Nicolas Maduro and other top Venezuelan officials, accused them with the ridiculous charge of being a uh, narco trafficker uh, with a conspiracy to destroy the United States by flooding it with cocaine. Even though according, first of all, there's no evidence for 
Maduro's involvement in, in the drug trade. And then you look at where drugs actually come from, and they come from staunch U.S. allies. They come from Colombia, especially, uh, but also Honduras. And even the president of Honduras, his brother was recently indicted for drug trafficking, and he had his initials on the bags containing the cocaine. Um, so it's it's the people, you know, as it always has been, and, and this goes back to the, you know, you uh, were very involved in the 1980s, so you remember how the people, you you were very involved in, in opposing the Contra War back in the 1980s. It was down, right? it was down there for, for six years. Right, so you remember, and, and we continue to learn more and more about this, is that the, that the, the same planes that were flying uh, arm shipments for the Contras were also carrying drugs. So, you know, um, if we want to s- stop the flow of drugs, the, you know, the, the, the task starts right here at home. And ho- All right, put them. that together for me, Aaron. All right, so you have, you have Attorney General Barr coming out and indicting at, at this major press conference, Maduro. Maduro. Yeah. And then you have Esper and you have the president preceding a press conference on uh, the uh, COVID-19, yeah. uh, talking about the diversion of ships going warships going into that area into yeah. the in the the caribbean uh yeah. what what does that auger those well, it, developments it, well it's it's obvious what they're trying to do they are i mean maybe they think there's some kind of pr benefit possibly in just in distracting the public from the covid 19 crisis and so they're trying to gin up something in venezuela but the main thing is they want to intimidate venezuela i think they they want to provoke venezuela in the, in the same way that the U.S. does this everywhere. They try to provoke their enemy into some sort of small reaction, and then they use that reaction to justify a full-scale military action. I mean, that's the playbook that the U.S. and its allies follow everywhere. For example, it was the play- it was the playbook in Panama, where after Noriega was indicted for uh, on, on drug charges, then you had U.S. troops by by by, um, by uh, the same attorney general. I mean, he gave right. them green light to go down there That's and right. came up with a legal opinion that you could go down there and you can extricate somebody out a, a sovereign leader out of their yeah. country and bring them to the u.s uh and face charges yeah. that that was a legal that's the legal opinion that he proffered back then and he's doing exactly the same right now with uh maduro yeah the one difference and uh, Medea Benjamin of Code Pink pointed this out to me on Twitter when I, I tried to make the same analogy. She said, she said, the one difference is that right now Venezuela can fight back, whereas Panama was a relatively uh, weak army. And the U.S. also had considerable influence over elements of that army, which is not the same in Venezuela, where Venezuela has a strong uh, a defense force, a very patriotic one. They've been uh, enmeshed into the government bec- by Ch- uh, since 1999 by Chavez and Maduro, precisely because I think they recognize that the U.S. playbook is always to co-opt militaries in uh, Latin America to basically overthrow the uh, democratic governments that the U.S. doesn't like. So um, it's going to be a lot harder for Trump to do this. What's with the $15 million reward? Well, that's, that, that I think is a recognition that this more than year uh, long attempt to overthrow Maduro via murderous sanctions, you know, cutting off Venezuela from the uh, global markets, cutting off its ability to import food and medicine, um, trying to spark these spontaneous military uprisings uh, led by Guaido. Those have been spectacular failures. I mean, they succeeded in punishing 
the civilian population. People are, are really suffering in Venezuela. So from that perspective, from this perspective, from the perspective of the statists in Washington, it's been a success, but it hasn't achieved their goal of overthrowing Maduro. So now they're basically, I think, uh, throwing a Hail Mary, which is that we're going to offer up $15 million. And that basically puts a bounty on Maduro's head for anybody in his, in his circle who wants to turn against them. So right. So they're looking for some mercenary within that, that, yep. that, that crew. Now, let, let, me, let me get back to Julian Assange. What will we be getting right now from WikiLeaks with Julian Assange uh, in terms of trying to expose what is really going on in Venezuela? Uh, what are we missing that, uh, because he's missing, what are we missing right now, the general public, of what he may be getting, uh, you know, uh, some kind of cables, uh, you know, people who want to talk about it, but they fear talking about it because they may be uh, being tapped in on. Uh, what are we missing right now from uh, Assange's absence in terms of exposing what's happening in Venezuela and Iran? Well, Assange could speak with authority uh, on the just how cynical and extensive U.S. regime change plots go. And so much of that was revealed in uh, the U.S. cables uh, um, released by WikiLeaks, where in country after country, you know, Assange exposed how the U.S. uses um, local uh, co-ops, local opposition figures with money, uh, how U.S. ambassadors and, and officials bully local officials. I mean, you can go in country after country, uh, you know, for example, Haiti, where you were Assange and WikiLeaks exposed you know, U.S. collusion in depressing the minimum, keeping the minimum wage low and uh, uh, plotting to stop any, any type of resurgence of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the democratically elected president who was overthrown in two U.S.-backed coups and privately recognizing that, you know, with some embarrassment that uh, despite U.S. attempts, uh, Aristide was still the most popular political figure inside of Haiti. And you learned some, so, much stuff, so much stuff about Venezuela, too, about how much U.S. officials loathed um, Hugo Chavez and loathed his movement. Because here was a country, a, a, an oil-rich country, trying to use its resources for its own people instead of domestic and U.S. elites. So, uh, you know, Assange having released this material, uh, um, curated it, uh, you know, uh, and written about it, he, you know, we're missing that voice of authority when it comes to just how the U.S. is pursuing that same playbook now. Is this something that they fear that Assange right now, if he were able to be working full time uh, and people trusting WikiLeaks because of the system that he set up, is this uh, one of the reasons why they're doing everything they can to keep him uh, in a situation where he cannot operate? I think that's, I think that's exactly it. I mean, you know, we, don't, we can't read... Mike Pompeo's mind, but if you are a uh, imperialist, um, hegemonic, basically mafia don, because that's what he essentially is, he's the head of a uh, mafia operation that shakes down countries and intimidates those who don't go along, then of course you wanna silence the people who are shining a light on your activities and who are doing it with such, I mean, Assange is someone, unlike the rest of us, I mean, you know, I, I, like I, I live a relatively comfortable life. I don't risk anything to do what I do. You know, 
Assange has repeatedly risked his life, risked his freedom to expose the truth. He hasn't held anything back to in order to, you know, curry favor with certain parties. He's also gone after the Democratic Party elite just as much as he goes after Republicans. So he's not even partisan. So someone with such uncompromising principles, uncompromising integrity and fearlessness is a huge threat to people who rule the world through intimidation and through instilling fear. Uh, and so someone like Assange, who is not uh, intimidated by that and who and does just such an incredible jo job of pushing back against it, of course he has to be silenced. And that's why, you know, all we can do is speak up against it. And that's why it's so disheartening that there's not more of us, you know, uh, with uh, whatever little voice we have who are speaking out, and especially in the media where, you know, Assange is doing the work that all of us should be championing. But because he's been so effectively demonized, even in our circle, Randy, you know, even in progressive media, there's been this normalization of silence around him or throwing him under the bus. And that has to stop. Let's go back to the um, to the um, DNC leaks by Assange. Uh, and why are we not talking about what uh, Deb, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and, and, and Donna Brazil uh, and company did? Uh, why isn't that not the center of attention, what they did uh, in, in 2016 to prevent a, uh, a resurgence candidate like um, like Bernie Sanders from uh, gaining that nomination. Why is that not on the forefront? Well, you know, the interest amongst Democratic Party elites and media outlets that toe their line is pretty obvious. They didn't want to do anything that could shine a light on their own corruption, their own hostility to a genuine uh, progressive candidate, not someone who, you know, speaks in, in platitudes like Barack Obama, but someone with actual serious policies like Bernie Sanders, they, you know, to shine, to have a focus on that would shine a light on their corruption. And also, and, and this is why we have Russiagate, it would shine a light on their own failures because of course, they're the ones who lost to Donald Trump in 2016. So- Getting back to Russiagate, wait a second, that like uh, upset my life for two years, this whole Russiagate affair. You know that, right? It, it's do. like it, it got it drove me crazy uh, because people actually thought that I was working with Trump with with the transmission of information from Assange to WikiLeaks. Yeah. I mean to uh, yeah. Roger Stone, right? That's what they actually thought that I was somehow helping out Trump uh, and having uh, you know some kind of access that I would give information. I mean, how absurd! When you saw that, how absurd was this whole narrative about me helping them out? I mean, it was a joke. I, and no matter how many times they kept repeating it, I could not get over just how ridiculous it was. But what was amazing is that it persisted for so long. It's basically, it's all fan but fiction. These are people that you know. I mean, no crusades. Even Jeremy Scahill did the same thing. I, I was on his show. And he was trying to trick me. He was trying to ambush me. He actually thought that I had something to do with this. Really? Well, I'm surprised to hear that. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I'm surprised to hear that. But that, that's... Uh, no, it's, it's, yeah. no, listen, the guy does great work. I, I think that he even got caught up with, with the fever of, uh, of, uh, of Russiagate for a moment there. 
but it was very difficult to extricate myself from that perception that I was somehow uh, involved, that I had collaborated with the Trump administration, the Trump campaign to help him win. Do you know how difficult that was for me? I know it was, Randy. I know, and I really, I feel for you and all you went through because, and, and then of course, you took it from, you know, it wasn't just liberals who were convinced that you were plotting with uh, 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 Trump and WikiLeaks. Then also you had all these, you know, uh, right-wingers who despised you because they blamed you for Roger Stone lying himself into prison, you know? Yeah. Uh, like you got blamed for that uh, totally unfairly. So, I mean, listen, I know. And look, the fact that you had even adversarial journalists and, I, you know, I, my impression of Jeremy is that he kind of played the fence. I mean, he definitely, I mean, he had on Glenn Greenwald, his colleague on his show, and he had me on um, at the end when it was all collapsing. And I'm, I'm sure he had on uh, people like Matt Taibbi too. But uh, yeah, listen, there was a, a huge- I have nothing to, bad to say about Jeremy Skagel. Yeah, I'm no, sure. Gonna, yeah. I, I, I think he's done incredible work. Dirty Wars, yeah. uh, over the years, Jeremy Skagel, he's, he's a great journalist. But for a moment there, when it first came out in um, you know, late December, 2017, I only did his show. Right. And, and he was able to pick out a few uh, text messages, not text messages, but- um, but tweets that I sent out, including the one of me in front of the embassy. The smoke itself. The smoke itself. If, if I was a back channel, would I have put in that, 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 that picture of me out uh, publicly? If I had something to do with it, would I put that out? No, and like, it, no, oh. it, no, it's so stupid. Listen, and the fact that, you know, like, listen, I think what did fool some people is your, you know, whenever your text messages with, stone got released the ones that you wrote when you were when you were pretty drunk about yeah. you know about how you heard about how you heard something about another release you know like like that came out and the thing, but the thing is look you know it it didn't take much to figure out that that basically there was nothing to any of that that you know as was the case here you were just you were basically uh saying stuff to stone to to like you, you know to like get him off your back and, and you were and you were drunk I feel sorry for Stone because Stone definitely had no contact at all and was just trying to impress yeah. Donald Trump at the yeah. time. Yeah. And uh, I certainly don't want to see him, you know, I, I don't like his past. I don't like his politics. But certainly uh, in you this should. instance, uh, the, the guy was just looking to be loved by the Trump administration, which had like thrown him under the bus. Uh, a yeah. few years earlier, which is pretty sad. Um, and, and you tried to get him, and you tried to keep him out of prison. You wrote that letter to the judge, and you know, well, uh, unfortunately, he's he, he's the victim of politics. Where this thing was whipped up for three years, everybody wanted blood. Everybody was told that this that, that this was going to bring Trump down, which of course it never was. So basically, you have all these collateral uh, victims, including Roger Stone, because I mean, he tells this stupid lie to Congress, and he did lie. That's pretty obvious. A lot of people lie to Congress. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Bringing lies to Congress. That yeah, guy sure, exactly, yeah. lies to Congress. Yeah. He lies to Congress in an investigation about non-existent uh, uh, collusion, right? So it doesn't matter. And the thing is, he didn't even lie to Mueller because Mueller didn't even um, interview him, I think, because they, I think they realized at a certain point that, that this whole Roger Stone thing was just ridiculous. But then, then they indict him 
for lying to Congress because they needed somebody. They, they, like they needed a sacrificial lamb. They needed something to show the public for all this time and energy that they wasted for three years. I mean, that's all, that's all any of these indictments are. That's why, for example, the, the Russian troll farm, uh, you know, which when it was indicted, you know, Rachel Maddow was crying on TV saying that, fine, or she was holding back tears saying that finally somebody was protecting us from the Russians and this was Russian intelligence, you know, all well, fantasy. Let me, let me ask you a $64,000. But, but that indictment, just to say, that indictment was just recently dropped. The, uh, the, like the Mueller team basically, like, or what's left of it, dropped the case against this Russian troll farm because the case was so stupid and it didn't even make any sense. So it just goes to show that like any indictment or anything to come out of that Russia thing is not an indictment on the substance or, or for any actual crime. It's just to give the public something to, to, to satiate a very hungry public and a very hungry media. Who has more of an impact on our elections? Is it Israel and, and, and the, uh, the lobbyists for Israel, APAC, or is it a weak Russia? <laughs> well, uh, to me, it's undoubtedly uh, Israel. I mean, by all metrics. I mean, just the amount of money that Israel lobbyists put into congressional races is is huge. And Ilhan Omar was perfectly correct when she said that um, uh, you know that APAC and its money are influential in Congress. That was that was exactly correct. And she was smeared as an anti-Semite for saying that. As is anybody uh, who challenges. Uh, U.S. support uh, for the Israeli occupation. They get smeared as anti-Semites, and even sometimes that leads to people losing their congressional races. Uh, Donna Edwards, uh, she was targeted by APAC, and I think she suffered accordingly, electorally. Um, so the, the amount of money, financial power, that groups like APAC and their you know, uh, affiliates and, and allies have alone is far more influential than anything that Russia could dream of I mean, you look at these dumb Russian Facebook ads. You can't possibly look at these things. They're, they're juvenile memes and say that they influence any voter. And it's, it's actually fascinating to look at how, how much contempt U.S. elites have for American voters that they can say with a straight face that because Russia, Russian troll farmers paid for some ads on Facebook that nobody saw that aired, mostly aired after the election, and that were mostly unrelated to the election. They were instead about like cartoons of Yosemite Sam or, or Jesus or Buck Bernie, that they can yeah. look at these ads and say that these ads are what elected Donald Trump. I mean, it shows such contempt for the American voter that, A, we could believe such a crazy thing, and, and, and B, that, you know, that people are so, it, it, it presupposes that people are so malleable that looking at a stupid Facebook ad could impact their vote in a presidential race. It's just, it's it's crazy and like it means Hillary Clinton can say stuff like that Russian Facebook ads helped suppress the black vote in Michigan like literally like she, like she thinks that some dumb ads that nobody saw on Facebook led to black people in Michigan not voting for her you know not maybe her you would think Julian Assange who they she blames mm -hmm. one of the people she blames Julian Assange he had given her a map of the United States that excluded Michigan <laughs> and uh, Pennsylvania and, and so uh, so looking at that yeah. that Assange, Assange uh, being the uh, target of her ire after the election is yeah. over. Yeah. If you take a really close look at that election, 
how much of an impact did WikiLeaks really have in deciding that election? Was it they? Everyone blames uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Who's really at fault here? I mean, you know, we'll never know, right? So you could maybe, maybe it's true that these emails showing Democratic Party corruption influenced enough voters in the swing states. I personally doubt it. You know, the emails showed that the party elites hated Bernie Sanders, but Bernie Sanders fans already knew that anyway. Um, and uh, it also showed that Hillary Clinton said one thing in public and then another, another thing privately to Wall Street, well, you know, like, which was embarrassing. But again, that wasn't a huge shock to anybody familiar with Hillary Clinton's record. And of course, not everybody reads the New York Times, you know, and while the, while the New York Times and the Washington Post gave these emails coverage, I mean, it, it wasn't like the talk of the town, uh, I think, across the country. I, I, think, I think interest in this was confined to a pretty small sector of people who, you know, are immersed constantly in the media, basically people who work in media. So I think the impact of those stolen emails has been exaggerated. And, you know, it's just nothing can compete for uh, with the Clinton campaign's concerted choice, as you say, to avoid Michigan and Wisconsin because their own internal polling, and we know this from the book Shattered, that their own internal polling showed that the more Hillary Clinton campaigned in these states, the worst she did uh, in the polls because her economic message was so unpopular and people associated her with her husband's economic, with her husband's economic legacy of destroying U.S. manufacturing jobs and shipping them overseas and with Barack Obama's, which, you know, doing the same thing and helping Wall Street. Uh, so, you know, to suggest that some stolen emails were more of a factor than people's um, uh, um, decisions based on issues that actually impact their lives. And again, it just shows such contempt for average voters. And that's what this whole Russiagate thing was based on. It's basically telling people that, that you know, this outcome is not because of, uh, you know, the failures of U.S. elites. It's because of Russia fooled all you, all you malleable, uh, um, vulnerable American voters. All right. I want to, we got just a, a few minutes left here. Actually, I, 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 we're going to have to split this into two shows. Aaron, I want to ask you about this event that's on April 11th. And, and it was uh, the announcement by uh, Nathan Fuller that you will be uh, hosting an, a, a webinar on April 11th uh, with uh, Marjorie Cohn and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Daniel Ellsberg mm -hmm. and Chris Hedges uh, on April 11th uh, in support of Julian Assange. Uh, just give us a little overview uh, on on these three individuals in the in the crisis that we are now all involved in uh, the coronavirus crisis. Why they would go out of their way and 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 spend time, yourself included, in behalf of Julian Assange. Why is it so important? Well, as we know, uh, prisoners are especially vulnerable to the coronavirus crisis. I mean, that's why we're seeing um, this um, scandal right now at, at Rikers Island in New York, where so many people getting infected and so many more at risk. Uh, and that's happening in prisoners across the country. And it's certainly the case in uh, Britain as well, where Assange is locked up. And the British government has, I believe, started to release Many prisoners there uh, to um, yeah, to, to do this. 
8,000, there we go, to, to deal with the impact of the coronavirus uh, and to avoid get, getting these people infected. But they're refusing to release Assange, even though Assange hasn't even been convicted of anything. You know, it's so, it's just, I mean, look, you know, the amount of legal chicanery and cowardice and cynicism that Assange has been through over the past decade now gets to a point that even during this global pandemic that threatens his life if he catches it, because, you know, talk about someone who's vulnerable. He has a chronic lung problem. Chronic lung problem. Years. He has a chronic lung problem and he's been locked in various uh, forms of confinement for the past decade. You know, hasn't been able to go outside. So of course the guy is vulnerable. And the fact that the, that the, that the British courts can't have them, you know, minimal decency to let him out, even when this, uh, this, this virus is, is, you know, could potentially reach him in prison. It's, just, it's crazy. So we have to speak up and it's great that we have this panel. And I, I think there's a few different sessions happening. I'll be doing this one with the people you mentioned. Um, well, these are great. These, this, is, this is a great panel. And these are people that are standing up, coming out. And uh, even though the, everyone has their own problems related to this like myself i can't like go around in this neighborhood without a mask on uh without gloves on and you know i'm in fear myself that maybe i got infected over the last month uh but why is it so important that we all and these people these giant these heavyweights are coming out in support of assange at this time even though they face their own uh, potential problems uh, with the, the coronavirus. Well, listen, we're all fighting for the world right now, right? We're, we're fighting for our own survival by doing the steps that we're all taking to protect ourselves and protect the people around us. Um, and we're fighting really to, to preserve a world. And we're all thinking about, you know, what kind of world we want to be in where, you know, because of the failings of our so-called market system, we have a country here in the U.S. that's particularly more vulnerable to this pandemic than other countries because of the continued prioritization of profit over people's health and of uh, spending trillions of dollars on wars over people's health and people's jobs and well-being here at, at home. So as we're thinking about what kind of world we want to be in and we want to fashion, I mean, I want to be in a world where truth tellers are championed and are protected and. Julian Assange is our foremost truth teller in this world and our, our, our foremost champion of transparency and of exposing the secrets of the powerful. So we need Julian Assange and we need people like him and we need to protect him at, at a time when, you know, even before this was happening, he was already in serious danger and he still is. So we have to step up to help him. And uh, that's why people of, of conscience like Daniel Ellsberg, who, you know, was one of this country's the most prominent whistleblowers is now speak, is, is speaking up again to defend Assange because because he just has to be protected. Well, let me just say this: this is the quickest ten-minute interview I've ever had. <laughs> this is supposed to be ten minutes. This is definitely going to be a separate show. We have been talking to investigative journalist, award-winning journalist Aaron Mate, uh, who works with the Gray Zone. That's your 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 like primary uh, operation is with the gray zone also has written uh, for the nation and many other publications award-winning 
journalist uh, Aaron Mate will be uh, hosting this webinar on April 11th with Chris Hedges, with Marjorie Cohn, and with, of course, Daniel Ellsberg. And I, I really thank you for uh, you know, allowing me to stretch this out. There was, I could go on for another hour with you uh, on this show, but I'm not sure the editors would be happy with me <laughs> to try to put together a two and a half hour show and, and, and jam it into a, a two hour show. Uh, Aaron Mate, thank you very much. And uh, we uh, look forward to the webinar on April 11th. And you can see that uh, at the Courage Foundation website. It's defend.wikileaks.com. Thank you very much, uh, Aaron Mate, and uh, be uh, looking forward to your uh, future uh, condemnation of the Mueller report and the investigation of Russiagate. Thank you very much. Anytime. Anytime. Thanks, Aaron. So your brother's bound and gagged And they've chained him to a chair Won't you please come to Chicago Just to sing In a land that's known as freedom How can such a thing be fair Won't you please come to Chicago For the help that we can bring We can change the world We are ready Okay, that was uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. The song is Chicago, of course. Uh, and weren't those guys great? Uh, Aaron Mate and uh, who I thank once again for... It's supposed to be a 10-minute interview. And uh, same thing with uh, Nathan. Nathan was going to be a five-minute interview. But, um, you know, I had to cut out the guy from South America who was scheduled on... Sergio Kiernan, we'll put that together for the next show. So we got that in the can anyway. So I did record him today, but I don't have enough room. And you may not have enough patience, because uh, I know I don't. Not for a two-hour show. This is Randy Credico. This is Randy Credico Live on the Fly. This is episode 13, season number four. Can you believe it? I want to thank everybody involved in this. Uh, Kelly Lane, who did uh, the recordings for me out of North Carolina. Uh, and I want to thank Anonymous Scandinavia, of course, for all of the work that uh, they've done for me over the last four years, including this show, all the little sound files. I want to thank um, I want to thank uh, Sarah Kunstler, who put together the website, uh, this wonderful website. She's even working on a new one, so she helps me out a lot, Sarah Kunstler, of late. And we are all in lockdown situation here in New York. And uh, so we got uh, some time on our hands. And uh, just as the second website she's built in like in the last week and a half, which is meaner and leaner. And we need your support. Just like I said, uh, we're going back into the studio uh, very soon. 
In the meantime, here we are doing this in a uh, kind of an improvised way. It's a real ramshackle uh, production, I'll be honest. But it's cool, man. We're all bohemians, right? Uh, just live with it. You know, what do you want, slick? Who wants slick? You want something that's real, man. And uh, we are we are bohemian real. And we need your support. Uh, go to that website, Assange Countdown to Freedom. You know, I've never panhandled for money. I'm like the worst at it. I really am. I'm the worst at asking for money. I'm a good organizer, and uh, I'm not a bad uh, political satirist, but I'm the worst fundraiser in the world. You wouldn't want me to fundraise for you, seriously. I just don't know how to do it. I'm squeamish. But I'm going to ask you, because we do have some bills. We want to continue doing this. And um, so it's AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. Make a small donation just so I can, we can pay the bills uh, here uh, at the studio coming up. And uh, for the, all these little things that, that require, uh, you know, underwriting. We need some help. All right? Not big. Small's good. Uh, that's AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. Boy, am I squeamish. All right, so um, we're going to continue the show, uh, and uh, we're going to fight to the very end uh, there in the trenches uh, with Julian Assange until he's out of there. Uh, I want to thank everybody involved in this production once again. Uh, gee, I sound like Sammy Davis Jr. He's like three-minute hellos and ten-minute goodbyes. All right, that's it. We are uh, going to play a little surprise music. I don't even know what it is right now, but I'm sure you'll like it. See you next week. Thank you very much. All pirates, yes, they rob I. Sold I to the merchant ships. Minutes after they took I. From the bottomless pits. But my hand was made strong. By the end of the Almighty, we forward in this generation triumphantly. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Cause all I ever have redemption songs. Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds Have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever had